All right, so I would invite you to stand again. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Going to be reading the entirety of Stephen's speech. As I told Jesse this week, this is nothing compared to uh, reading three chapters of some of the minor prophets uh, earlier this year. So hang in there. (laughs) Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53. Again, please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave, them, he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and foretold our, and forced our fathers to expose their infants, so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. 
And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephim, Rephim, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law 
as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and we will keep it to the end. Give us understanding that we might keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. Lead us in the paths of your commandments, for we delight in it. Incline our heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. Confirm to your servants your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that we dread, for your rules are good. Behold, we long for your precepts and your righteousness. Give us life. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We saw last week in chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, how Stephen faced opposition from those in the synagogue of the freedmen. These were most likely uh, those who had been enslaved. They may have been prisoners of war who had been enslaved and been freed. They'd returned to Jerusalem. They were Greek-speaking Jews met in in synagogues that were separate from the Hebrew-speaking Jews. They came against Stephen. They stirred up the people. This led to accusations of blasphemy against Moses and God, particularly as it related to the holy place, the temple, and the law. They also quoted, they accused Stephen who quoted Jesus in regards to his foretelling of the destruction of the temple, which was not actually the physical temple, but Jesus was talking about his own body, which he would raise again on the third day. And we noticed in that section how Stephen reflected Jesus in his words and in his actions, and then finally in his shining face at the end of that section, just before the high priest questions him. God's presence, God's favor was upon Stephen. And we considered what it looks like for us to reflect Jesus to the world around us in our words and in our deeds, even in the face of opposition. We continue this morning to follow Stephen in what we can accurately call his trial before the Sanhedrin. Mentioned last week, we saw it there in chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. We see it in the conclusion of this chapter, which we'll see next week that there are 10 ways in which Stephen's trial paralleled the trial of our Lord Jesus. But the question of who is really on trial here is one that we need to reconsider. Is it really Stephen who is on trial here in chapter seven? Well, let's see. Verse one begins with the high priest asking Stephen whether or not the charges against him are true. Are these things so, he says. These people have been listing these things. Is this true? Are these things so? And what would we expect in terms of a response here? We've already seen Peter and John respond to accusations from this same council and from this same high priest. Remember in chapter 4, after the crippled man was healed, 
The council asked, by what power or by what name did you do this? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, this is chapter 4, verse 8, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this, has been, this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter makes an appeal to the power and the name of Jesus, essentially declaring the innocence of himself and John and therefore the other followers of Jesus in the face of the accusations that they were facing. Interestingly, not so with Stephen. In 53, 52 verses, Stephen doesn't defend himself once. Notice how he does start out, though. This is really important, and we will come back to this. Brothers and fathers, hear me. Now, Stephen must have been Presbyterian because when we greet each other, at our Presbyterian meetings, when we stand up for reports, we say, fathers and brothers, so maybe, or we stole it from him. But he gives this respectful response, right? Brothers, he's, he's kind of speaking maybe on a more horizontal plane here. You're, you're, you're one with me, and, and fathers maybe speaking a bit more, more vertically or just more respectfully, right? He's kind of leveling the playing field, but also kind of maybe submitting himself, putting himself under some authority, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. So he establishes a common ground with them. Then he says, our father, Abraham. In other words, we're part of the same lineage. We're part of the same history, the same story of God's people. That's important that this common ground is established because Stephen's identity as an offspring of Abraham is key to what will follow. We're going to see this phrase, our father, seven times, seven more times throughout this passage. So in one sense, Stephen gen genuinely is one of them. Now he launches into this long recounting of Israel's history from verse 2 through 50. And this is where we really need to slow down and be careful how we are reading this. Now I originally wanted to title this sermon, remember and repent. But this isn't just a retelling of information for the purposes of remembrance. It's not that they had forgotten these things. It's not like many Americans who, when you ask them about their family lineage, maybe they can trace it back a couple generations. Maybe there's a few key stories that were passed down about a great-grandparent or a great-great-grandparent but beyond that, a lot of us don't really know a lot of details beyond maybe going back a couple generations. I know it's not true of everyone, but I find, I find that that's generally kind of true of a lot of people in the Midwest. You know back a little bit, and then things kind of fizzle out. On the contrary, these were the chosen people of the God of glory, the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, as the believers in chapter 4 said when they addressed God in prayer. They had the promises. 
They were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew their history like the back of their hands. It was written in God's book. To assume that Stephen is giving them a history lesson here, I think is to totally miss the point. He didn't need to tell them these details because they had forgotten who they were. His message isn't, hey, don't forget where you came from, but rather, you know this stuff and you don't get it. I think a better word than remember is recognize. Recognize who you are. So how does he then bring out this call to recognize? It's by taking the very accusations that were leveled against him and holding up the mirror to the council and to the high priest. We talked about reflection last week. Think of that here. God's word is to be held up to them as a mirror. What do they see when this recounting is told? What will we see when we hear these words? Now Stephen is going to walk through the history of Abraham and Joseph and Moses with a very brief reference to Joshua and David and then Solomon. So he's mainly camping out here from Genesis chapter 12 to the end of Exodus. And there are two recurring themes that we will see from, verses, from verse 2 through 50. And both of these themes are part of the key accusations against Stephen. The holy place, or the temple, and the law. Those are the two things that Stephen's going to highlight here in this speech. The holy place and the law. So the questions that we want to ask, which I believe Stephen is drilling down to the heart of as he flips the script on the council and on the high priest, is where is the holy place? That's the first question. Where is the holy place? And the second question is, what does the law require? So where is the holy place and what does the law require? Now if you read Stephen's speech with these two questions in mind, you really can't miss what he's getting at. Now, because of the length of this passage, we are going to be skipping over a lot of the smaller details that are not as important, but we want to key in on the things, these two things that he's highlighting. So first, where is the holy place? Verse 2, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was where? In Mesopotamia, in a foreign land, in a land full of Idolatry. This is modern-day Iraq, Syria, Iran, maybe part of Turkey. Again, this is a foreign land. Stephen highlights that right off the bat. God appeared to Abraham when he was in a foreign land. Verse 4. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So then God did bring him to the land where they were, but don't miss verse 5. Yet, he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. You might think about Hebrews chapter 11 and the talk about Abraham and, and the promise of the land, all those things. You could go read that later. That would be helpful for thinking through these things. And verse 6 gets at a key identity of God's people. 
God spoke to this, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. Wow, some promise. Thanks, God. You're going to send us to a foreign land as slaves for 400 years. I talked about most of us not, you know, knowing back more than a couple generations. Think about 400 years. I mean, that's, that's a really long time, right? 20 generations? That's crazy. I don't know. I mean, if you can trace back 20 generations, that's wild. But think about that amount of time being in a foreign land as slaves. Stephen also adds another layer to the identity piece with the reminder of the covenant of circumcision, and we'll come back to this later. But now he sets to help them recognize the significance of Joseph's life, verses 9 through 16. Now there are two layers to this here with Joseph. The first layer is the rejection by his brothers, and the second is, again, this idea of a foreign land. Where does Joseph end up? Verse 9, patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. And what does it say right after that? But God was with him. If you read Genesis 34-ish to the end, the account of Joseph, this is the constant refrain in the Joseph narrative. God was with him. God was with him. Everyone is opposed to him. He's, he's sold into slavery. He's, he's mistreated. God was with him. God was with him. It's the constant refrain. We know that story, right? He's exalted in Egypt. God rescues his people through him. He saves Egypt and the Egyptians from famine, for which they ought to have been eternally grateful. However, we now move into Exodus and the focus on Moses. And that there's a new king in Egypt who forgot Joseph, the deliverer of God's people. So God worked to miraculously preserve the life of baby Moses while other Hebrew babies were being murdered. And the Lord raised up Moses as another deliverer of God's people. Just as Joseph was raised up to deliver God's people, Moses is raised up to be a deliverer. Stephen then outlines the life of Moses in three 40-year chunks. The birth of Moses until he is 40 says that, uh, looking in verse 22, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Moses was not educated in the land of Israel. He was not educated in the Hebrew language. He was educated in a foreign land, brought up by the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. This is just another jab, another poke at the religious leaders. Look what God did in this foreign land, through this foreign language and this foreign education system. Next, Stephen tells of Moses from ages 40 to 80. How his brothers did not understand that God was to give them salvation by his hand. So they persecuted Moses. Look at verse 27. They thrust him aside. This individual thrust him aside, but that was a a picture of what all the people did. They rejected God's salvation. 
in a similar way to that Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Again, this is another theme running throughout this speech, the rejection of God's chosen one. And so Moses flees and ends up where? Not back in the promised land, but in the land of Midian, among idol-worshiping pagans where he spends the next 40 years of his life, still not in the land. And now, come to the heart of the Moses account as Stephen tells of Moses' last 40 years from ages 80 to 120. God appears to him in a burning bush, reminds him who he is. Look at verse 32. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Where is holy ground? This is the same as the question we're asking. Where is the holy place? And the short answer is, wherever God is. Stephen fleshes this out in verses 35 and following. He doubles back to the rejection of Moses, the deliverance of the people out of Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness then for 40 years, still not in the land. And Moses himself never enters the promised land. Stephen then highlights the foretelling of Jesus by Moses in verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, he quotes then from Deuteronomy 18, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. But they rejected Moses just as they would reject Jesus. Stooping so far as to make a golden calf while Moses, the Lord's appointed deliverer and prophet, was on Mount Sinai receiving the law from the Lord himself. The depth of their depravity is seen then in verse 41. They made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. This word works here is the same word as deeds that we saw back in verse 22 where it says Moses was mighty in word and deed before God. I think no doubt there is meant to be a stark contrast here. Moses, God's deliverer, mighty in deed, and the people rejecting Moses and making this thing, rejoicing in the works of their own hands. So you see the works of their hands versus the deeds of God stark starkly contrasted there. And we see the result of their idolatry here in verse 42. God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. This is opposite of the previous experience, especially of Joseph. God was with him, right? God was with Joseph. We see that over and over and over. God was with Joseph. He was with his people. And here, because of their idolatry, God turns his back. He turns his face away and gives them over to their own worship. This is followed by the quote in Amos 5. Their idolatry and their failure to offer right sacrifices to the Lord, even after entering the land, would eventually lead to you guessed it, being expelled from 
the land, this time to Babylon when Judah finally fell in 586 BC. Now that's a bit of a fast forward by Stephen, but now he backs up and he very quickly passes from Moses to Joshua to David to Solomon's temple in four verses in verses 44 through 47. And the point here is that the Lord had been traveling around with his people in a portable tabernacle and even the temple of Solomon, which was viewed as a permanent dwelling structure for God, the point is that is not the goal. That was never the goal. Stephen quotes them from Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 in verses 49 and 50 to further drive home this point. He's not finished yet. This is the proverbial mic drop on the temple argument. Look at verses 49 and 50. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Notice again the contrast, right, between the Lord making all these things with the work of his hands and them rejoicing in their idolatry and the works of their own hands. Now there's a lot here. That was a pretty quick flyover of Stephen's probing question, where is the holy place as seen in the lives of Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, and Solomon? And the answer from Stephen without equivocation is not here. The holy place is not here, not in the physical land in which my blood is about to be spilled when you stone me to death, council members and high priests. And not this temple in which you have placed your hope. Which, by the way, is not even Solomon's glorious temple. It's the second temple. It's Herod's temple that paled in comparison. And this temple would be destroyed in a few short decades. So, before we go on to focus on the law, we've looked at the temple. We should probably try to hit some application points here. First, just the obvious one. There is no holy place. There is no promised land on earth. Not Israel, not America. If your hope is in a physical piece of land in any way, shape, or form, I want to say that your hope is as misguided as these people whom Stephen was confronting. The whole book of Acts is moving us in this trajectory away from Jerusalem, away from a focus on a place and a building, right, to the ends of the earth. And there's no such thing as a forever home. I mean that in terms of a place and in a physical structure. Now, I don't want to go off on how much hearing that forever home word just annoys me. But as Christians, we shouldn't even think that way. Like, oh, this is our forever home. Like, how do you know? Like, maybe it's not. Maybe God's going to destroy it in a fire and make you go live with your parents in their basement for a few months, you know? Like, I mean, what's about your forever home then, Doya? But, you know, like, really, like, is that, do we talk that way and should we think that way? Is a, is a city, like, oh, I'm going to move to, I'm going to move to, like, wherever, right? Because right? that's, like, where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. You don't know that, right? God might have other plans. I mean, most of us in this room can probably talk about 
ways that God has directed and, and changed our paths, right? Like, oh, we thought we were going to be here. I see people nodding. Like, I know a lot of your stories. Like, I thought I was going to end up here, and now I'm in Oshkosh. Like, what the heck, right? <laughs> but God's got a plan, right? Trust him. Don't put your hope in a place. I mean, guys, honestly, like, you hear me joke about, I, I never thought I would live in Oshkosh, right? God brought us here, and if you ask me, like, oh, where's the, like, where's the place you want to live? I, I'm like, I don't, nowhere. Like, this is where God has me. Why would I want to go live in wherever, anywhere, you know? I don't know. Just, like, this text should inform us in that way. And it's okay if, you know, if God is calling you to a place, he may be doing that, and that's okay. Like, follow him and go there. Go to Stevens Point, Limas. Like, yes, that's what we want, right? But, like, that's not the promised land, and you know that. So this, is, this should like inform the way we live and the way we think and the way we talk to other people about these things. Like Stephen is really poking us here. Don't put your hope in a place or even in a house, right? Okay. There's also, I want to say at the same time, it doesn't mean that God is unconcerned with towns and cities and States and nations doesn't mean he doesn't care about the gospel making a positive impact in a certain place. Some people feel really called to a certain place for a certain purpose. If that's you, man, trust the Lord and go there, right? Do that because God cares about that place. We must always keep in balance our dual citizenship as we think about this, right? We're always simultaneously citizens of heaven where our ultimate hope is. Again, go read Hebrews chapter 11 and we're at the same time citizens of wherever God has placed us at that time. Also, it doesn't mean that God hates buildings and beautiful architecture, right? It doesn't mean like if some church's worship is building a new building and worshiping this great space that we should be like, try to be like Stephen and oh, God's gonna tear your building down, you idolatry. No, like not at all. Like God loves beautiful architecture. He loves buildings and spaces that honor and glorify him. We should... We should be happy about that. I'm currently in the process, I've shared with some of you, of of remodeling a room in my basement. And I am a total perfectionist. I want it to look nice. I want it to to function well. I want it to bring glory to to God in the way that we use that room and the way we care for my son who will inhabit that room until we finally kick him out and then put another kid in that room. Like, I care about that space. I'm I'm putting money and a lot of sweat equity into this because I want it to look nice. I didn't just like throw a piece of cardboard on the floor and say, well, go put your bet on that, right? Like I'm, I'm working really hard on this because God cares about these things. So we should care about them too. But again, in all this, we can't miss the point. We can't miss the central thrust of this speech is that where God is, that place is holy, Where God is, that place is holy. If you don't take anything from Stephen's speech or anything that I'm saying, take that. Where God is, that place is holy. Why was the ground that Moses was standing on holy ground? Because God was there. Bonus points, Andrew. Thank you. We're one week away from Christmas, celebrating the glorious incarnation of our Savior. And I would do you a massive disservice if I didn't make this application, even though Stephen doesn't go there directly. 
John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You've probably heard this before. That word in the Greek, dwelt, is the same word as the word tabernacle. It literally means the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's that picture of God traveling around with his people in the portable tabernacle in the wilderness. Just as he did that, so now he dwells among his people in and through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who is the temple. And he dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. And we, the church, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 20 to 22, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's talking about us, the church, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, God dwells among us. He is here in our midst. He is with us. This is a holy place. Not because there's crosses and steeples and stained glass windows. It's because God is here. He dwells among his people. Do you see it, church? The call here is to not be blind and hard-hearted like the Sanhedrin and the rest of the religious leaders, but to have eyes to see and ears to hear, to recognize who we are and to recognize what God requires of us, namely faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to his revealed will, which is found in the scriptures. Their folly here, the folly of those accusing Stephen, is meant to be a deterrent to us. And we must read Stephen's words, his following words, carefully. Our response here in reading these words should not be, yeah, you showed them, but Lord, help us to recognize and repent. And we can do that as Christians by the grace and the mercy of God. This is an ongoing need. This is why passages like this and Psalm 105 are so important for us so that we do recognize and repent continually. So don't breeze over Stephen's harsh rebuke here. We must read this in its context with his accusers in mind, but we must also see how he is turning this on them in order to get at the second question. What does the law require? It's the second question. So first one is where is the holy place? Second, what does the law require? Again, while they were in a unique place historically as those raised as Jews under the Old Covenant, we cannot remove ourselves from this same criticism completely. But first, let's look at them. Stephen goes right for the jugular here. He drops two big bombs on them. First, this is in verse 51, you stiff-necked people. This is a phrase that is used almost exclusively in the Old Testament to describe those in Exodus chapters 32 to 34 who crafted the golden calf. You stiff-necked people, those who rejected Moses, rejected the Lord, and chased after idols. Second is uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now this one cuts deeper than just the idol worshiper accusation. 
There's plenty of Old Testament examples of God's people worshiping idols, which is always a bad thing. But it doesn't change who they were as God's people. It's not a sta- that's not a statement saying they're, they're idol worshipers. That's not a statement about identity. As Christians today, we must admit that we likewise are prone to worship idols. We have things, mostly heart idolatries. A lot of us probably don't have physical statues in our houses that we're like bowing down to, hopefully. <laughs> we don't have idolatry in that type of way, right? But we chase after things in our hearts. We forget God in our hearts. But God doesn't say to us in the midst of those heart idolatries and struggles with sin, he doesn't say, you are not my children, but he says, turn away from your idolatry and worship me alone. However, this accusation from Stephen cuts deep. He calls them uncircumcised in hearts in heart and ears. It says you always resist the Holy Spirit. There are multiple warnings throughout the Old Testament to not be uncircumcised in heart and ears. Leviticus 26, Jeremiah 6 and 9, Ezekiel 44. Now for us to, to think about this, if baptism replaces circumcision as the outward sign of the covenant, of covenant inclusion, the message is, we could say, don't be unbaptized in heart and ears. Martin Luther was known for saying to people, remember your baptism. Don't get baptized, don't say you're baptized, but then live in an unbaptized way, in the way that you respond to the Lord and to his word. This applies to our adult members and to our youngest members, little ones children out there who have been baptized in the church. Hear me. Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. Remember the God who has worked faithfully in your family to bring your parents to himself. He's placed you in a home where Jesus is loved and Jesus is honored and worshiped. Hear his words. Recognize who he is. Recognize what he has done for you through your family. Don't stiffen your necks and harden your hearts. We all need that remember, as the, that reminder as those who have been baptized. But kids, especially, remember that. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember your baptism. Obey God. Obey your parents for your own good and for God's glory. Now, the dramatic turn that Stephen makes here is of paramount significance. He essentially says to them, your uncircumcision means that you are outside of the covenant. Remember back in verse 8 when he said that God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. He's saying that that means nothing if it's just a physical marker and you don't have a heart that is circumcised to receive by faith all that God has done for you through Christ, who we'll see they rejected. And if you don't have circumcised ears to hear what God is speaking to you through his son and through his spirit, whom they continually resist. Now I titled this Recognize and Repent. Stephen never actually uses the word repent. He doesn't actually tell them to do anything, but certainly that is the proper response 
calling them stiff-necked people. He's saying, stop stiffening your neck like the oxen that refuses to be yoked. Let Christ, the gentle Savior, yoke you to himself, for he said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And let him give you a new circumcised heart and ears. Now we saw earlier in one sense that Stephen is one of them. He said, our fathers. But in another sense, he's not. You may have noticed this shift. We could say that he's not one of them or they're not one of him. Notice what he does in verses 51 and 52. As your fathers did, so do you. Eight times previously, it was our fathers. This isn't an accident, right? Luke didn't like mess up his pronoun here. Our fathers becomes your fathers. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Your fathers, meaning stiff-necked and uncircumcised. The killers of the prophets who announced the coming of the righteous one, who he says, just like Peter in chapter 2 and 4, you have now betrayed and murdered. The tables are now turned on those who received the law as delivered by angels but did not keep it. So what does the law require then? Well, how about not murdering the Messiah, for starters, but recognizing that all the promises of God find their yes in him. Again, that God dwells among us in the word made flesh. This should be at the forefront of our minds this next week as we prepare to celebrate Christmas. And another great Christmas text, Galatians 4, 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And as Paul says just before that in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The law which was perfectly kept and perfectly fulfilled on our behalf by the righteous one, the eternal son of God, the only one who could be both lawgiver and law keeper. The religious leaders of his day did not recognize him and repent. Will we? Will we recognize him and repent? Maybe for you today, that's the first time saying, oh, I see it now. I get it. Who Jesus is, who he claimed to be, who others claimed him to be, to recognize that and repent just means to, to do a 180, right? To turn around and go the other way. It's a change of mind. It's a change of heart. If you're already a Christian, it's continuing to recognize, right? Continuing to recognize who he is, continuing to live a daily life of repentance before God. Not out of obligation, not falling back under, under the yoke of the law, but by letting Christ yoke you to himself. What a great picture this is of faith and obedience as we prepare to come this morning to this table. As we think about the reality of the temple not being something built with human hands, but it being a resurrected body, which we now partake in 
by faith as we come to this table. And recognize that, recognizing that we don't come on our own merits or our own law keeping, but we come humbly as law-breaking idolaters who have been freed from our slavery to sin and death by the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior on that cross, the one who kept the law perfectly. Do we recognize this? Not just giving intellectual assent, saying, oh, sure, maybe these things are true, right? Do we recognize them in our hearts? Do we acknowledge in our lives? Do our words and our deeds reflect the reality that we trust in Christ and in Christ alone? That's who this table is for. Now, it doesn't mean that if you're not yet a Christian, if you, if you haven't yet trusted Christ and recognized him, that you're not welcome here. You are welcome in this place. We're glad you're here. But this table is for all of those who have put their trust in Christ, who walk with him, who live with him in a life of repentance, however imperfect that repentance may be. We don't rest in our own repentance because that is a grace of God.